You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Good morning. How are you guys doing? My name is Gray Carter, and I am the worship pastor here at Real Life. Uh, But today I get to share and teach as we continue this series called Restored. Now, in this series, we've been uh, advancing, we've been laying out the narrative framework of the Bible to see how each covenant advances the unfolding plan of restoration between God and his people. And as we were starting to work months ago, we started to work on this series, and I noticed that each covenant was ushered in by a major person of the Bible. I noticed there is a covenant of Noah and of Abraham and Moses and David and then Jesus And as we were working on it, Josh asked me if I was interested in a particular covenant. And right away I said, David, I'll take the Davidic covenant, right? Because I'm a David guy. Are there any other David people out there? Um, I'm a David. You know, he's a worship leader. David's a worship. He's a songwriter. He's a musician. He's a poet. And I feel like I've spent a lot of time with David, right? I've read his poetry. I've studied his songs. I've read his prayer journals. To me, David is not like some... um, ancient, abstract idea of a person. He's not just a character in a book, but he's a living, breathing person. And in some ways, he feels like a good friend. See, we go way back. You know, I've been reading the Psalms of David since I was a little kid. For some reason, I read them as a little kid and they resonated with me, right? I read them and they nourished me. They comforted me. I found peace in the Psalms. You know, in the the Psalms were written by David. About half of them were composed by David And so when you're reading the Psalms, it's like you're reading his prayer journal, you're reading his songs, his poetry, but they are songs he meant for them to be sung. And as you read the Psalms, you'll see in the header an inscription in a lot of the Psalms that say, for the music director and for the choir master, for the song leader, to be played with stringed instruments and with this kind of melody. So they are meant to be sung, and they have been since the time of David. But when I read those Psalms as a kid, I had no idea about the context, right? David would write about his enemies, He would write about being chased and hunted. He would say, Lord, save me. Deliver me from those who pursue me. They want to rip me to pieces. They want to tear me apart. They hate me. They curse me. They mock me. They hate me for no reason. And I had no idea who he was talking about. I didn't know who his enemies were. I didn't know the events, the circumstances of his life. But for some reason still, the Psalms resonated with me. I was still able to connect to the essence of the universal feeling that stretched beyond his particular time and space. And as I read the Psalms, I was able to pick up on a pattern. See, David's song structure reveals this pattern or this blueprint for worship, the way he processed and the way he prayed. And here's the pattern. So in many of his Psalms, he would start off complaining David would start off complaining and just venting and processing. He would talk about all the negative stuff he was going through, and he was vulnerable, and he was honest, and he was uncensored. And he would say, Lord, I'm depressed. I'm full of despair. My soul is in anguish. I've been weeping. I'm utterly crushed. And he would ask questions. He would say, God, have you forgotten me? It feels like you've turned your back on me. He asked, how long must I wait And he would go on like this, but eventually his perspective would shift. You know, he would get all the venting out, he would process, he would get out all that out of him, and then he would say, but God, he would look to God and say, but you are faithful. 
You say, my goodness, you have been there. You have led me through the toughest times of my life. And so I will trust you, especially now. You know, and I didn't know the context of, uh, of, of the, uh, the Psalms, but later on I learned the context. I learned more about his story, more of the events, um, the circumstances of his life. And here's how it works. In the Bible, in the book of First and Second Samuel, we get the life of David. We get the events, the circumstances. We get what was happening in his life. In First and Second Samuel, we see how God molded and shaped him and guided him as he ascended to the throne. But in the book of Psalms, we get what was written by David. We get what was going on in his soul, in his heart, and in his prayer life, and in his worship. So today, as I cover just a bit of David's story, there's going to be an interplay between First and Second Samuel and the Psalms. I'm going to interweave the Psalms throughout as we look at the, the life of David. And today, we're going to see why David was chosen, why he was singled out, and described as being a man after God's own heart. And we're going to see why he was the guy chosen to usher in this next covenant. And we're going to see why his life set the stage for the ultimate covenant of restoration that would unfold a thousand years later. All right, so let's begin. Let's go back to the 10th century BC, a thousand years before the life of Jesus. In the book of 1 Samuel, around this time, God is looking for a man after his own heart. God is looking for the next king of Israel. Uh, the current king of Israel is King Saul. Saul was the very first king of Israel. He was the people's choice. The Bible say he is the tallest man of the kingdom and he was the best looking guy around. And so based on outward appearance, he seemed like a good choice to be king. And at first, his reign went okay, but eventually his true colors started to show and his heart turned away from God, and he stops following the commands of God. And so the nation of Israel starts to spiral downward. And so that's where David's story begins. God is on the hunt. God is looking for a man after his own heart. In the book of 1 Samuel, God sends this guy named, this wise prophet named Samuel, to Bethlehem to go find this guy. So God says, Samuel, go to Bethlehem. Find this guy named Jesse, one of his sons. One of his boys will be king. Right, he sends Samuel on this mission to go find David. And at this point in the story, David is just this little shepherd boy. He's a teenager. He spends all his time out in the field taking care of the sheep. Right, he has no accomplishments. He's from this random town in the middle of nowhere from an unknown family, the least likely to be king. But for some reason, God knows about David. You know, how does God even know about David? Why is David on God's radar? Well, it turns out they spent a lot of time together. See, as David was out in the field taking care of the sheep, he was also worshiping nonstop. He was singing to the Lord. He was writing poetry to the Lord. He was playing his stringed instruments in worship. He was praying. He was spending time. He would say things like, I love you, Lord. My soul thirsts for you. I long to be in your presence. My heart is set on you. I want to be in step with you. I want my heart to be aligned with your heart. I want my heart to be on rhythm with your heart. Right? This is a guy who is after God's own heart. And this is an intimate relationship. 
right? God knows David and David knows the Lord. And this relationship is expressed beautifully in Psalm 139. And I'll paraphrase most of it. This is how David talked to the Lord. This is how he prayed and how he sang to the Lord. He said, Lord, you search me and you know me. You perceive my thoughts. And even before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. He said, God, you formed me from the very beginning. You wove me together with your hands. You created my inmost being and you knit me together in my mother's womb. So I praise you because I'm wonderfully made. And he says, your hands are still guiding me. The same hands that formed me at the very beginning are still guiding and shaping and molding me. And then it ends with this on the screen. Verse 23, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Right, what a, what a prayer. Search my heart and know me. Examine my thoughts and make them yours. Right, God, I want to know the depths of who you are and I want you to know the depths of who I am. All right, this is an intimate relationship. And so back to the story. So Saul, uh, Samuel is told to go to Bethlehem and find this guy. That's all Samuel knows. He knows, find a guy named Jesse and one of his boys is going to be king. So Samuel does. He finds Jesse and Jesse has eight sons, but he only brings out seven of them. They leave David out in the field. He's just a little kid. They don't even bother to include David. And so the seven sons are standing before the wise prophet Samuel. And the first guy steps up and he's tall and he's sculpted. He's enlisted in the army. He's good looking. And the wise prophet Samuel is like, this must be the guy, right? He's good looking. He's muscular. And God is like, what? I'm not into handsome men. I'm not looking for a handsome dude up in here. That's not what I'm into. We don't need a Saul number two. This is what God really says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. God says, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Right? He's looking for a man after his own heart. And all seven boys step up one at a time, and God says no. He doesn't choose any of them. And so Samuel's confused. He says, there must be another boy. And Jesse, the father, is like, yeah, there's the little kid out in the field, little teenager, little shepherd boy. He's going through puberty. His voice is cracking. He's out there singing emo songs. I'm not sure what he's doing. But they call up David. David comes up and God says, this is the guy who is after my heart. And so Samuel anoints him. And from that day on, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon David. He was a teenager, but he was anointed to be king. He was anointed for a process, but this was going to take a while. This was going to take years. And so God starts preparing him. There's this divine orchestration that starts to take place. God is moving things around. He's shifting things into position. He's setting the stage for David. And at the same time, he's slowly removing King Saul. And so back at the palace, King Saul is starting to go crazy. His anointing has left. The Spirit of God has departed. And the Bible says evil spirits are tormenting him. 
This dark cloud of insecurity and rejection and despair comes over King Saul, and he's moody, and he's difficult to work for, and so the guys underneath him say, why don't we get someone to play some music, and then maybe that would calm you down. We know this guy who plays the stringed instrument. He plays the harp or the lyre. And maybe when he plays, it'll calm your distempered soul. And so they get David out of the field. They go and get David. And David's been prepared for this. He's been worshiping all his life out in the field, playing a stringed instrument. He's mastered his instrument, right? The Holy Spirit is on him. The Holy Spirit is on every note. So David shows up and they say, play your worship, play your music for the king. And David does, and the atmosphere changes, and a whole other mood takes over the room. And the evil spirits depart, and Saul is relieved of all that tormented him. You know, sometimes at home, when my wife is extra moody, extra grumpy, I get the stringed instrument, and I get close enough, and I just see if I have that anointing. Play the stringed instrument. But David did, and he was hired to play the stringed instrument. He was hired to play music for Saul. And so people are starting to notice, they're starting to be aware of David. He's he's the guy who plays for the king. He then then becomes the armor bearer for Saul. He then starts fighting battles, and he's the guy who who killed Goliath. Right, he's the guy that Goliath was this oversized, cocky Philistine who was talking trash about the Israelite army and their God, but everyone was scared to fight him. King Saul was scared. The guys in his army were scared. But David shows up, and he's anointed, and he knows the Lord is with him, and he has this supernatural courage. And so David shows up on the battlefield, and he starts talking some mad trash. He says, I'm not afraid of this uncircumcised Philistine. So I will strike him down, chop off his head, and feed his carcass to the birds and the wild animals. Right, he's a poet and he's a trash talker. And then he does just that. He knocks Goliath down with a rock, decapitates him with his own sword, and then he carries his head back into town. And as he carries, Josh says, woohoo, celebrates the decapitation of the uncircumcised Philistine. He carries his head back into town, and as he does, the women line the streets, and they're dancing, they're playing instruments, they're singing songs, they're celebrating his victory, and this is the song they sing on the screen, verse 7. It says, as they dance, they sing, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. All right, Saul, King Saul hears this, and he doesn't like this song. He becomes jealous and insecure. And so insecurity, ego, and jealousy, competitiveness becomes this toxic cocktail of emotions that starts to stir within Saul. And he actually wants to kill David. And there's this one scene, David's playing his instrument and Saul takes a spear and throws it at him. He tries to kill him. And so here David flees for his life. He runs for his life. Saul sends his men to kill David. And so David has to run all over the place. He's, for some reason, he's public enemy number one. He hasn't done anything wrong. But actually for years, I believe it's four years, he's on the run for no reason. Saul and his men want to kill him and his enemies surround him. And at one point, David ends up in a cave. And this is maybe the lowest point 
of his life. You know, his world has been turned upside down. His life has been uprooted. Everything's been stripped away from him. He's, he's scared. He's overwhelmed. You know, stress, despair. And he processes before the Lord. He wrote several of his psalms during this time. They were his prayers, his songs. And as he was on the run from Saul, he wrote this, Psalm 59. This was his prayer and his song. He says, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie and wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine. I have done no wrong, and yet they are ready to attack me. And he goes on, and he processes, and he gets all that out of his system. But by verse 16, he looks to the Lord and he says, but I will sing of your strength. Right, he begins to worship. In the morning I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. God, you are my strength, my fortress, my God in whom I rely. So in this psalm, you see that pattern, that blueprint for worship. He starts writing from a place of despair, anxiety, and fear. But he stays in the presence of the Lord long enough for his heart to be influenced back to a place of trust and gratitude and worship. You know, for David, every hardship becomes this platform for praise. Every disappointment serves as a dance floor for his rejoicing. Every dark night of despair is this prelude for his life song of worship. And all anxiety, fear, and doubt is just a prelude to his prayer of complete surrender and trust. As I was uh, studying this, I was reminded of a season a couple of years ago, I went through a season where my world was turned upside down. My life was uprooted, and I felt very much like David in the cave with enemies. I felt like there was enemies surrounding. Plenty of reason to process and complain and be vulnerable before the Lord. Plenty of reason to worry and have anxiety. I remember uh, in that season, I was at a, a men's Bible study, and these men knew my context. They knew my story, and they asked me, are you, are you worried? Are you stressed? You know, how are you doing? And I remember having complete just peace, peace that surpasses understanding, and I said, I know for a fact that God's hands are on my life. You know, the same hands that formed me in the very beginning are still there, guiding me. Complete trust, and I imagine reading the Psalms all my life rewired my brain, informed my perspective. I imagine I absorbed and internalized the Psalms so that that David's song structure became the song of my life. And in that moment, I fully trusted in the Lord. Soon after that, Moscow, Idaho came into view, and I, I traveled up here. It was for an interview and kind of an audition and and to meet the staff. And I must have broke down and cried three times. And uh, and recently, 
Uh, a friend asked me, why were you so emotional when you came up here? Right? Why did you cry when we were supposed to just be eating dinner? <laughs> and it took me a while to think about it. It took me a while to find the right words, but eventually I found the words, and it was that sometimes the divine orchestration of God's work on your life happens so slowly that you can't see or can't perceive the parts moving around and the pieces falling into place. But sometimes the divine orchestration of God's work on your life happens so quickly that you can easily see it and feel it and sense it as the parts move around and the pieces fall in place. And so as a result, I was emotional, and as a result, I worshiped. And so what we see in David's life, you know, it it was a process. He was anointed when he was a teenager and didn't become king until he was 30 years old. You know, there's ups and downs, there's mountains and valleys, and eventually Saul, King Saul, dies in battle, and his sons die And so Israel needs a leader. And David steps up at the age of 30. He followed the Lord wherever he was guided. He trusted the Lord throughout and he praised him in every situation. And so now at age 30, he takes over as king. And the first thing he does, the first act that he does when he takes the throne is he builds this tabernacle for worship. He builds builds his tent of praise. He gets song leaders and music directors and choir masters. He gets 288 musicians and singers, and he hires them to worship and play music 24-7. A lot of people don't realize that, that the centerpiece of David's kingdom was this symphony of nonstop worship. There was worship happening in the tabernacle 24 hours a day, seven weeks, uh, seven days a week for the entire reign of David's kingdom. And David is dancing before the Lord, and it's, the Bible says he's inventing instruments, and there's symphonies and orchestras and worship teams. It reminds me of Psalm 150. I'll paraphrase it. It says, praise God in a sanctuary. Praise him with the trumpet and with the strings and the pipe and with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with every instrument. Praise him with the cymbals and the resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord with whatever instrument you have, with dancing with prayer. And the people of Israel still uh, realize that David is a king who has a king. Right? The people realize that David is the king, but he has a king who is the king of kings. And David's like, I may live in the royal suite of the palace, but I will still humbly bow and worship. David's like, they may dance and sing songs about my victories, but I will sing of all the Lord has done, and his praise will always be on my lips. In the Psalms, he says, be enthroned on our praise, Lord. Lord, we enthrone you with our praise because you are the king of kings. Right, David is a king who has a king and he's still a man after God's own heart when he's in power. He's a man of God, but he's not perfect. He's still a man. And there's this moment where he abuses his power and he takes advantage of a woman named Bathsheba. He has this adulterous affair she becomes pregnant and he tries to cover it up and he conspires to kill her husband. And so he's a man after God's own heart, but he's also a murderer and a schemer and an adulterer. You know, soon after this, God sends this prophet to confront David about his sin and right away David realizes what he's done and immediately he confesses and he repents. 
and he praises God, and he thanks God for his mercy and his forgiveness. And that's the context of Psalm 51. After maybe the greatest moral failure of his life, this is what he writes. This was his prayer in his song. You know, Lord, forgive me. Have mercy on me according to your unfailing love and according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And then it gets to this part. This is, a, this is a song we used to sing in high school. I wonder if any of you sang this song. This is maybe the first song that I played on the worship team on guitar. It was based off of this psalm. It says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Right, this is why God, this is why David is a man after God's own heart. When he messes up, after maybe the, the greatest moral failure of his life, he comes before God with a broken and contrite heart. He confesses, he repents, and he praises God and thanks God for his forgiveness and his mercy. And he worships God with all his heart and he trusts and obeys God with all of his heart. His heart was fully devoted to the Lord. So God says, you are still a man after my own heart and you are forgiven. God forgives David. He restores relationship back to David. And what we see throughout the Bible is that God is a God of restoration. And God is a God of relationship and of promises and covenants. And so this takes us to the Davidic covenant. You know, we've gone from, from Noah to Abraham to Moses to David. And here we have the next handhold, the next covenant. David's story advances the redemptive story further and brings us one step closer to the ultimate covenant. We have one more handhold in their greatest story of redemption. And this is what the covenant says In 2 Samuel, verse 7, this is the promise that God made David. He said, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies before you. And now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And when your days are over, and you rest, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood and I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Notice it says forever. The kingdom will be established forever. This reaches beyond the life of David and beyond his children and beyond the nation of Israel. Right? This, the covenant is that a descendant from the line of David will rule forever, that his kingdom and his house and his throne will rule, for, rule forever. You know, and this is, how, um, this is how it plays out. So fast forward, David reigns for 40 years. He reigns as king, and then his son Solomon reigns for 40 years. And then as time goes on, 
Israel starts to fall apart. As the decades turn into the centuries, the kingdoms are destroyed, the dynasties are wiped out, the temples are demolished, the people of Israel are captured and they're scattered all over the place, they're taken out of their land. And in the Bible, it says that the people of Israel didn't even want to sing their joyful songs of praise anymore. Psalm 137 says they hung up their harps, right? They hung up their instruments and said, how can we sing our joyful songs of praise when we're in a foreign land? So the people of God waited in exile, crushed, defeated. Their enemies surrounded on all sides. Their world was turned upside down. Their life was uprooted. Everything stripped away from them. And they hoped that God would send a great leader, a great king like David, a man after God's own heart who would redeem their situation and restore things back to order. And they waited. And as they waited, I imagine they sang a psalm of lament, a psalm of mourning and grieving, you know, just like David did when he waited in the cave. I imagine they sing a psalm like Psalm 113. Now, I'm going to read this psalm. And then because psalms are meant to be sung, I'm going to have Lily sing this. You know, David wrote this as he was in the cave. And I imagine the people of Israel sang this as they waited for their Messiah. It says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But then he says, his perspective shifts and he says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise. Yes, for he has been good to me.
In the psalm, we see that pattern, that blueprint for his worship that he modeled in so many of his psalms. He starts writing from a place of despair. And by the end of it, he says, but God, you are good. I trust in you. I trust in your unfailing love. And these psalms weren't meant just to stay on a personal level. They became the, the anthems and the songs and the hymns for the people of Israel. And for thousands of years, the people of God, God have gone back to these psalms and have read them and prayed them and sung them. And as they waited for the Messiah, the people of God went back to the psalms and found hope there in the blueprint and in the pattern they were reminded to praise God for his unfailing love. Praise God for the promises and the breakthroughs that are yet to come. And we happen to know that David was not the last king to come out of Bethlehem. We happen to know that David was a king who pointed to the king of kings. David was just a shadow of who was to come. He was a prototype, a picture of someone even greater. In the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament introduced Jesus as being a son of David, a descendant of David from the line of David, and it's his kingdom that will reign forever. But that's for next week. For now, I'll conclude with one more psalm as we prepare for communion. Let's get our communion elements ready. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus and his disciples were celebrating a traditional Passover meal. And right after they took the cup and right after they took the juice, I never knew this, but it says they sang a song together. At the Last Supper, right after the bread, right after the cup, it's Matthew twenty six thirty on the screen says, they sang a song together and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's the last thing they do at the Last Supper as Jesus is heading to the cross. He sings a song. And scholars happen to know that Psalm 118 would have been the song you would have sung at the end of a traditional Passover meal. And Psalm 118 is a psalm of David that David wrote when he was hiding in the cave, feeling his enemies surround him on all sides, but knowing that God was in control. And here Jesus, as he's slowly heading towards a cross, sings this song, feeling his enemies surround him, but knowing that God is in control. And that psalm ends with this, you are my God and I will praise you. Jesus and his disciples saying, you are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. So let's remember a love that endures forever. Let's remember a king who reigns forever. So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember him. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's remember him. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for your unfailing love. We declare and say that you are good and that you've been good in every season. And I pray that we would be a people who would worship you and praise you in every circumstance, in the highs and the lows, in the mountains and the valleys. We would know that we can process 
before you, Lord, and complain to you and talk to you and in prayer and in worship. But we always come back to that place. I pray that we would always come back to that place of just thankfulness, of a grateful heart, that we would always come back to that place of trusting in you, that we would stay in your presence long enough to have our heart influenced back to a place of trust and surrender. And Lord, we want to be people who are after your heart. We want to be in step with you. We want our hearts to be aligned with yours. Lord, we want to follow wherever you lead, so guide us. I pray that we would be moldable and shapeable. Right now, Lord, we lift up our worship and we praise you. We enthrone you with our praise. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.